Welcome to The Greenhouse Effect. Our hope is that this podcast would be like a greenhouse to help you get unstuck and grow in your full potential because life ought to be fully lived. Welcome back, everyone. This is your host, Steve Perkins, and today's guest is Dov Barron, the founder of Full Monty Leadership and a best-selling author, an expert in a whole bunch of topics, including authentic leadership, next-gen leadership. We're going to cover all kinds of other things, though. You know, there's a litany of, of really cool achievements and things he has done. He was featured on CNN and USA Today, CEO Magazine, many more. He, he's interviewed and worked with leaders featured on Oprah and Ellen and New York Times, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, all kinds of places. Um, and he's been speaking internationally for over 30 years, including presenting to some really cool audiences like the United Nations, Servant Leadership Institute. Dov has been cited as Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers to hire. And He's also been named a top 30 global leadership guru. He's great for hiring for you know motivational speaking and all kinds of leadership topics. He also has a TV show on Roku TV and a number one podcast you should check out called uh, Leadership and Loyalty Show. And his latest book, which we'll be diving a bit into, is called Fiercely Loyal, How High-Performing Companies Develop and Retain Top Talent. So as you can tell, there's a number of topics that you're going to be gaining from today and that we're going to dive into. So, Dov, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be here. I'm looking forward to serving you and your audience. Yeah, same. And I hope people can check out your your shows and and get more goodness from you. So today's Thank just you. a bit of an intro. <laughs> well, I, I think the topic we want to address today is a bit around how do you thrive as a leader in the age of AI? Yeah, great question. You know, there's so many angles of that. I'm sure, you know, you could speak for hours and hours, but maybe let's start with just giving a pe- people a sense of where you're coming from, what's your story. And I know you've had some some pretty incredible moments that have shaped what you're doing and who you are today. Uh, I think that would be an understatement. <laughs> um <laughs> I can pick any number of things to answer that with, but my guess is that you would probably like me to talk about um, 1990 because uh, prior to that, I started speaking in 1984, had a lot of success, uh, spoke in almost every major city of Australia, uh, northern U.S. and Canada, and in 1990, I was more more successful than I'd ever been in my life and uh, returned to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, pretty exhausted and took a few days off and went up to a place called Whistler, which some of you may be familiar with. It was where the 2010 Winter Olympics was held, except this was June. It was uh, beginning of summer. It was beautiful. And uh, my buddy and I went for a hike. Uh, I, in those days, was a full-blown mainlining uh, adrenaline junkie. Uh And so we went to a place called Brandywine Falls. Brandywine Falls is this gorgeous glacial waterfall where the water comes off the glacier and drops about 200 feet off the top of a, a cliff and it's magnificent and instead of just standing there and taking in the beauty like a sane person uh, i decided that we should hike down which we did and i also decided uh, that we should try and get behind the waterfall um, which means you've got to face a 70 mile an hour wind and you've got to go across slimy wet rocks and that's what we did and we got behind there 
which was pretty insane. You know, three feet gap and there's tons of water coming down. But when I came out on the yeah. other side, I felt like Superman. I mean, I felt like indestructible with all those negative ions. And I said to my mate, uh, let's not hike back. And he was like, well, what are we going to do? And I was like, let's climb the face. So, you know, you may think that mountain climbing is crazy, but it's not because you have ropes, you have harnesses, you have safety lines, you have climbing partners, etc., And you certainly have the right clothing. Uh, free climbing is a little crazier because you, you don't have any ropes, but you have chalk, you have the right clothing, you have a use of the climbing partner, etc. cetera. Uh, free climbing in wet clothing with the wrong shoes on and no chalk, that's insane. Um, I was soaking yeah. wet, and that's what we started uh-huh. to do. At 120 feet, I reached for a rock that dislodged a bigger rock that, bam, hit me in the face and sent me hurtling down to the bottom onto the boulders below where I was smashed to pieces. So that was the end of that part of my career. Yeah, I would think so. What happened immediately after that? I'm sure you heard later somehow. Yeah, um, well, some bits of it, fractional memories in there. So I got smashed to pieces on the rock. Uh, I laid in a pool of my own blood. My buddy scrambled down. and they did get me out. Um, I died, uh, um, I think it's four or five times, we're not quite certain, um, between over the next two hours. Uh, I had massive reconstructive surgeries, uh, I think 12 in total. Um, and afterwards fell into a very, very dark depression. Now, I just want to give everybody a little bit of background here for a minute. Um, as you can hear from my accent, I'm not North American, um, although I've lived here for a long time. I came here from Australia. Um, however, I was not born in Australia. I was in Asia and Indonesia. I lived in East Coast Canada. I was in France and Italy, and I was born in the UK, and I left there at 21 years old. And I was born in a ghetto. I was born in a really tough environment. I'd been a boxer. I'd been a martial artist. I'd been elite. Mm-hmm. I'd had businesses in three continents. So, you know, I was not going to admit that I was depressed. I was way too egoic for that. So when people would Uh say, how you doing? I'd say, I'm great. I'm coming back. Well, first of all, there is no back. I don't know if you know that. That doesn't work in life. Um, And second of all, I was really, really depressed. And on a particular night, after feeling for months and months, probably almost a year and a half, like I was never going to laugh again. I mean, that was how dark the depression was. Wow. And and Uh I was quite suicidal. Uh, I was having lots of suicidal uh, ideations, and but again, nobody knew. And I went for a night out with my mates, and instead of uh, feeling like I can't laugh, which is how I felt before, I actually had a good laugh. I had a good laugh that night. Oh, maybe I'm coming back. You know, maybe there's hope. And I walked wow. through the door and opened the door, and the light from outside on the porch came streaming into the kitchen. And across the kitchen floor, I could see festooned garbage there was kitty litter and there was uh, coffee grinds and there was cans and paper and packaging and, and it smelled bad. And I was like, I was furious. I went from, from being joyous for a moment to being full blown rage, not anger, rage. I knew exactly who the culprit was. I went marching through the house to find the culprit. And there's the culprit curled up all comfy on the couch. I lifted my hand and I was just full of rage and I was about to strike and about halfway down, Something stopped me because I'm not a violent person. Stopped me. And instead, I just put my hands down and scooped up my cat. 
and held it in my arms and fell to my knees and began to weep. I mean, not cry, but like, <gasps> you know, sobbing. Uh huh. And I, as I was there for a few minutes and I suddenly realized, why am I crying about a cat I didn't like? I didn't even like this cat. Somebody given it to me. I didn't want this cat. So why am I sobbing? And I suddenly realized I'm not crying for the death of the cat. I'm crying for the loss of the life that I had. And that was the turning point. That was when it began to all change. That was when I realized I have to find my purpose. I found success, but I'd never found fulfillment. And the people I work with today are those people. They're people who are massively successful, but they're at that place where they go, there's got to be something else. What is it? What is it I'm looking for? Because I can't find it in a Tesla. I can't find it in a new house. I can't find it in, in a new wife or a new husband or a Rolex or some other external success. What is it? And that's where I was. That's the moment. Wow. That's so incredible. What happened for you as you began to process that new mindset, that new thought? Well, initially, you know, it'd be nice to say I waved the wand and suddenly it was great. It wasn't. It was bloody hard and I wanted to quit and I didn't want to do it. I mean, I knew in that moment that I had three choices. The, the choice was to, to keep trying to go back. Again, there is no back. That's not how it works. The second choice was the most deliciously, seductively appealing one, which was to own being a victim. That it wasn't my fault. I fell off a mountain. You know, shit happens and it's not my fault. And, you know, uh, and just to give up and to get a job and, you know. And as deliciously seductive as that was, I knew I could never do that. It's not who I am. And the third choice was to find my purpose. To actually say, why am I actually here? Now, if you'd have asked me, let me be fair here. If you'd have asked me, I don't know, the day before I fell, is your life on purpose? I would have said, without a doubt, yes. But you see, we don't understand what that really means. And this is the work that I do privately with my clients. People don't understand what purpose is. It's something that has never gone away. It's always been with you. But people go looking for their purpose in their passion. Your purpose doesn't exist in your passion. It exists in your pain. And very often, in order to recognize it, we have to look at the pain. And so that's what I had to begin to do. I love how you phrase that because I was actually talking to some friends about this the other day, that passion and purpose, they're both kind of getting a lot of um, attention as words in, in current media. And passion, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's inherently more selfish or self-focused. Whereas purpose is inherently more others focus and how you can help others and improve the world. And so I haven't heard it put that way before, but coming out of pain, it would make sense that tees you up to help others who are struggling with similar things you did. Absolutely right, Steve. You got it. That, that is absolutely it. It's passion. It, so here's the thing. Just to help everybody to understand it for a moment. If you want to think about passion, here's the way to understand it. If you are a straight male, so you're a heterosexual male, you can remember what you were passionate about between 15 and 18 years old. And Steve <laughs> nods knowingly because we any straight man was passionate about the same thing, right? Yeah. And if your passion was supposed to be your purpose, then we'd all be lining up for jobs at Victoria's Secret or in a gynecology office. <laughs> right. right? I'm not lining up for that uh, because it's, it was a passion. 
passions are transitory. The things you were passionate about when you were 10 are not the things you're passionate about when you're 20. The things you're passionate about in your 20s are not usually the things you're passionate about in your 30s. Passion is transitory, passes through, but purpose is not. So passion is the vehicle that transports your purpose. Purpose is always there, but you've got to go look for it. And people go off on tangents and they go, oh, I don't know what happened to me. I've lost my passion. No, you haven't. That vehicle ran out of fuel. It's okay. You'll find another passion. That's all right. It's just a vehicle. It's your purpose that's about something bigger than you, something far greater than you, that's something that you want to outlive you, not like the bloody Trump name on the side of a building. That's egoic. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about putting your name on a building. I'm talking about having an impact and creating influence that will shift change and make the world better by easing a pain that's similar to what you've dealt with or confronted. Right. And that's where it's not something that you just wait to magically come to you one day. But like you said, it's always with you. So how how do people start to get clarity on what that purpose is? There's all kinds of ways. And it's a great question because um, most people who think they found their passion haven't. They've never done the work. And the other half think, oh, another section of people think it's their their passion, which it isn't. Um, And then there's the people who willingly ignore their purpose um, because, as I said, your passion comes out of joy and pleasure and and as you said, it's it's self-centered. And believe me, I'm not making anything wrong about passion. It's great. But your purpose is internal, it's painful in its birth, Um, and if you think about birth, it's a painful process, right? There's nothing nice about birth. Go stand in a maternity ward and ask any mother who's about to give birth or just (laughs) gave birth. It It may develop into something beautiful, but it's a painful process. Right. So... That's what that's what purpose is, and so in the reason that people can't find it is because they're not willing to look at their pain. And so, how do you do it? I actually have. I, I, I'm going to give you two resources. One is I wrote a book called One Red Thread. You can find it on Amazon. Um, it's an ebook at the present. It will be it's an ebook and physical book, but I'm actually doing a rewrite and it'll be a full release book this year. Um, and um, I also have a brand new course called All at Once. You can find it on my website at fullmontyleadership.com. But All at Once, where I actually walk you through how to find your purpose. Because, as I said, it's never gone away. It's always been there. But to help you right now, I want to help you to find it, to start yourself on that journey. And I'm going to give you an exercise that's actually in one red thread and is in that course. So what I want you to do, um, and you've probably done this part of the exercise before, which is I want you to imagine that you're writing your eulogy. Now, some of us have done that exercise before. So I want you to write your eulogy. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral, but if you've ever been to a funeral, you will know that um, if you heard the eulogy, what is the job of the person reading the eulogy? The job of the person reading the eulogy is to dry clean the person who's dead. That's their job. They are the dry cleaner. So a very good friend of mine who I knew for many years who had a horrible childhood. I knew him and I knew his dad and his dad died. And he said, my friend asked me, would I go to the funeral? I was like, no, your dad's a dick. And I go, you know, I have no, there's no love loss for me. Um, And I didn't even really know him that well. I just knew how he treated my friend. 
And then he goes, yeah, he goes, he was, but I'd like you to come to the funeral because I want my, your support. Would you do that? I said, absolutely. So I went to the funeral. And he said, he said I, I said, I'm not sitting at the front. He goes, no, I don't want to sit in front. I want to sit at the back. And so the person at the front did a eulogy about my friend's dad, who was a dick. Let's be clear about this. But the person doing the eulogy told a story about how my friend's dad had paid the rent for a neighbor once and never asked for the money back when this neighbor had nothing. And he talked about how kind and generous this man was. This was not who he was. It was a dry, clean job. It was certainly something he did, and it may have even been a moment of grace where he was a kind and generous person, but it was not a personification of, it, of who he was. Sure, yeah. That's the eulogy. I want you to write a eulogy of your life. Now, remember, it's a dry, clean job. So what you write is the very best, the wonderful, the magnificent, if I may, I'll tell you mine, because I want to give you an example so you understand it, how to do it, right? So mine says, Dove Barron was a courageous man. He lived his life on purpose, and he fought to help others live their life on purpose so they would find deep meaning, deep fulfillment, and make the world a better place, right? It's pretty dry cleaned. It's magnificent. I feel good about having that there. Yeah. Uh huh. So now you go. So you do your eulogy. That's your first part. You separate that, and you wait a day or two, and then you do the second part. So the second part of the uh, of your is called the whispers. So you got your eulogy dry cleaned. As we sat at my friend's father's funeral, and the person did the eulogy next to me was my friend and other people who knew the man very well, and I heard the whispers. People whispered the truth about him. They whispered the things he would never have wanted to hear. So what I'm asking you to do now is to write the whispers separately. The whispers are not dry cleaned at all. They contain some dark pieces around your past. They contain uh, some things you would never want people to say. Even though it may not be true about you, you may fear that it could be at some point. So I told you what my eulogy was. So now I have to write my whispers. What are the whispers? What is it I never want them to say? And I struggled with this one. Uh -huh. I struggled a lot because I went, hmm, you know, I wrote a, a bunch of stuff and like nothing really worked. And I'll tell you why it didn't work. Because if you're going to write the whispers, it has to be a gut punch. If you, when you right. write it down, if it doesn't make you want to vomit, if it doesn't make you want to really upset. You're not being honest. You're not being honest. <laughs> you're, still, you're still sugarcoating a little bit. And as my mom used right. to say, icing sugar on top of a turd is still a turd. So <laughs> right? it ain't a donut, right? So be real clear not to do, be clear not to do that to yourself. And it's tempting, yeah. egoically tempting. So you need to feel the pain of this. So I put Dove is a coward and that hit, but it didn't really gut punch because remember the beginning of mine is Dove was a courageous man. Look sure. his life on purpose. So I was like, yeah, that's kind of it, but it's not it. So then I began to imagine that funeral and who would be sitting at the back. And I imagined instead of the people at the front, I pushed them to the back. And I put my daughter and my sons and my grandchildren all in the back, whispering what I would never want them to whisper. So what I had them whisper was, I was a coward. And that hurt because it was my children and my grandchildren, people I loved. But it didn't quite work. Until for me, see, because my ego could argue with that. Here's the reason uh -huh. that I'm courageous. Here's the reason that it's not true. But then I added an expletive, and immediately I added the expletive, it was a gut punch. 
I won't say it here because we're on your podcast, but Dove is an effing coward. And suddenly that was like, oof. Wow. Uh huh. Just that because it created raw emotion. Right. And, it, and part of how you knew you had gotten to it was the emotional reaction you had in myself, when you said it. When I went, oh my God, that would be terrible. I don't want to yeah. do that. Not Dove was a coward. Eh, I, you know, I can dismiss that. It sounds like somebody doesn't know me. Ah, you're an idiot. You don't know anything about what I've gone through. But when I picture my grandchildren, my wife, my children saying Dove was an effing coward. Oh my God. Even saying it now out loud, I get choked. I feel like, Oh my God, I feel sad. And and so now what I have is I have the eulogy, the dry clean, and I have the whispers. Human beings are motivated by two primary forces, pleasure and pain. The eulogy is the pleasure. The pain is the whispers. And here's the thing. Keep the pain close. People are afraid of the pain. You use that. That's the fuel that keeps the fire on my ass that moves me forward. So that I don't get lazy, so I stay courageous. So when I want to not do it, when I want to go, oh, you know, nobody will know. I remember, I remember the whispers. Yeah, and you can see the power. The power of this exercise is you're you're sitting here explaining this all to me. Um, you know, fairly calm and stable, right? You're not having the same reactions as when you first did it because the fact of being honest with yourself like that has has gotten you to a place where now you're more comfortable in your own skin and you can actually live forward in those realities. That is true, but I still keep the emotional connection to it. And this is the thing, this is one of the mistakes we might go, oh, I had the emotional reaction. You need to keep it. I stay connected to that. I still can still plug into that um, when I'm feeling a bit cowardly, when I'm feeling like I want to back away from doing something that I know is part of my purpose. I go, you know what? I got to step up. I don't, actually have an option here. I got to step up. Yeah. So you said that after the accident and and that kind of moment of clarity, there was a realization that you you know, you thought you knew your purpose before, but you really didn't. What did you know as you started to actually make this change and gain the clarity? What did you actually know about your purpose already? Oh, I knew lots of things about my purpose. I just wasn't paying attention. So I wasn't really paying attention. So yeah. the truth was I was living my life on purpose before, but it was under the surface and um, I was in denial of lots of this stuff. So one of the tests for me was, uh, you know, you and I talked before we went on mic about some of my background, you know, and uh, as I said, I, I traveled the world to study religious philosophy and metaphysical studies Vedanta, Hindu philosophy, Buddhism, Gnostic Christianity, the Tao, Kabbalah. You know, I studied all those. I studied psychology and and family dynamics um, because I was frustrated with spiritual people who couldn't get their shit together. Then I studied family (laughs) dynamics and became a counselor and a therapist and got really pissed off with people whining and not doing anything about it. And then I studied the psychology (laughs) of excellence. I wanted to know why people were winners. That's today called the psychology of leadership. Um, and realized that a lot of those people were in denial. I was like, damn, what is this? You know, and then I studied quantum physics in 84, started, stumbled into that and really, and then wrote a dissertation on the intersection of those three things and suddenly got, oh, this is what it's about. It's how all those three things come together. There was pieces I was in denial of and any, any one of the rotations 
I could be aware of the psychology, uh-huh. but not aware of the metaphysical. I could be aware of the metaphysical, but not aware of the psychology. Be aware of the psychology, but not aware of my impact and my quantum effect in the world. And so, by putting those together, I got, oh, this is what it is for me. This is what it is that I'm actually not, not really doing. And so, I had to check my ego, and I still do it every turn because in all of the other, if I separated all the things, it was how I was better. See, if I was spiritual, I could have spiritual ego. Well, you don't understand. You've not traveled and sat at the feet of masters. Right. Right? Uh, You don't understand. You don't understand the deep psychological understanding of this. This is Jungian. This is Freudian. This is Adlerian. You you know, this is is family. You just don't get it. You know, talk down to people. What a dick. Right? Or you don't understand it because you don't understand you ever at the thirds, multiple dimensions of reality. You know, or, or you don't understand Bohr's law or any of those things. I'm just being a dick who's, who's in his head and I'm egoic and I'm saying I'm better than you. No, no, hold on. Let's pull that right back. I am not better than you. Nobody sits in front of me is worse or better than me. Everybody who sits in front of me is me. It's I don't live in the world. I live in the mirror. It's a reflection of me. So therefore, I had to dismantle something, which was my ego, which I still have to do every day. All of us do. But to dismantle my ego and say, what if I'm not better than anybody else? And what if nobody's broken? Therefore, there's nothing for me to fix. And that's where I got to and went, that's where I'm now sitting in my purpose. There's nothing to fix. You're already complete. Steve is already a magnificent whole complete being. Fred, Susan, Ethel, whoever it is, all magnificently perfect, wonderful people. However, you may have got buried in a ton of shit. I know I did. And sometimes you lose the diamond in the shit particularly when the, when the shit gets crusted on and you forget there's a diamond inside. But it yeah. the fact there's a diamond inside. It's already whole and complete. But the crap got piled on top. And so we start thinking, oh, that I am the crap. No, you're not. Neither am I. That's all. My job is just to help you wash the crap off. That's it. That's beautiful. I, I love how you're talking about it, the integrated person because, you know, we started this off saying leadership and I know you know, a lot of the work you do is with quote unquote leaders, Mm. but a person is a person with all of these aspects and elements. And so, yes, to be a great leader, you need to address these things holistically, but really just as a person in general, uh, if you're not leading yourself, you're not leading anybody. It's just an ego game. You know, the bottom bottom line (laughs) is, you know, people ask me all the time, can you define leadership? And I say, yeah, impact and influence. You are always having impact, even if it's crap, even if it's a terrible impact, you're having it, and you're always having influence. Even if it's a terrible influence, you're always having influence. Influence and impact. So you have to become conscious of your influence and impact. And the only way to do that is to become conscious of yourself. Do I do stupid shit? Absolutely. And I have to catch that, and I have to go back, and I have to apologize, and I have to be accountable for it, and I have to do better. And that's it. It's impact and influence. And you are always impacting and you're always having influence. And so if you're a brother, you have impact. If you're a sister, you have impact and influence. If you're a mom, a dad, a sister, a brother, if you're a a solopreneur, you're having impact. Or whether you're the CEO of a Fortune 10 company, you are always having influence and impact. Your responsibility to it may be at a greater level of numbers, but it's still the same. So you have to lead yourself first. And you can't do that until you have the courage to have self-knowledge. And self-knowledge is not, well, I know I'm a bit of a jerk. No, no, that's not self-knowledge. That's actually holding your own constraints. 
it's I'm a bit of a jerk and I need to do something about it. So let me get some of that out of the way. That's a commitment and accountability to going deeper. So good. A lot of what I'm hearing is that to really start to live into your potential and, and to really um, be true to yourself, you actually need to do some hard work. There's some work involved in this. It's intentional to do the work in a way that's not just glossing over some of the hard things, but really addressing the pain and really putting some real effort into getting clarity on these things. Absolutely. It's about the work. Um, and I think that this is this is the mistake. As I said, I work with a lot of leaders. I work with billionaires and such. And, and uh, you know, oftentimes I'm introduced to somebody and they'll say, well, you know, I just don't need you. And I go, oh, that's good. Great. Okay. And I'll say, why? Can, can you tell me why, though? And they say, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm happy. I'm successful. I go, okay, good. Um, tell me about it. And they begin to tell me about it, and it's stuff. The world looks at them and pats them on the back, and they've got all this stuff. And they say, well, how is it going to make me better? And I go, if you work with me, probably won't. They go, what do you mean? Um, initially, it'll probably make you a bit more unhappy. And they go, well, what do you mean? Because you'll realize that you, you'll have to come out of denial about all the things you've been pursuing that don't actually fulfill you. And if you don't have to tell me, but if you're honest with yourself – you know that it feels amazing to make the next $100 million deal. That's fantastic. But how long did it last? A minute? 10? Maybe a day? And now what? Now you're looking for the next $100 million deal, right? Yeah. Okay. And by the way, I do know that you're fooling around on your wife. Oh, you know that? Yeah. How do you know? Because I know. That's what I, I'm, I can, I know things about people they don't know. And by the way, it's not Google search. It's who I am. Right? It's what I see. And a lot of my clients go, it's hard to look at you. You feel like you're looking at my soul. I see things that people don't realize. And I say, yeah. you're fooling around with your partner. Why? Do you love your partner? Yeah. Does she love you? Yeah. Then why are you fooling around? Does it work? Yep, it does. How long for? Till the moment is over. Hmm. So what are you chasing that you can't find? Because I can help you to find it. And I will help you find it. That's what I do. That's why I only work with a small amount of people a year who can afford me and can commit. And when I say afford, I'm not talking about money, although that's part of it. I'm talking about can afford to go, you know what? I'm stripping it naked. I'm going in there. That's why my, my website is full Monty, stripping it down, revealing it all. Because when you get to that, I, I, one of my clients wrote to me yesterday. He goes, it's been two months. And I go, uh-huh. He goes, my entire world has changed. He's yeah. a very high-level executive in one of the big four accounting firms. And he said, my whole entire world is changed. He goes, I had four projects on the go outside of the company. They've all come to fruition. People are coming at me. He goes, and I know how, it, how I know it's to do with the work we've done. And I said, what? He goes, people are using words that I only heard you use when we were together, when we did the initial work. And I go, yeah. He goes, I said, like what? He goes, like resonance. He goes, no, I've never heard anybody use that word. He goes, you used it, explained yeah. it to me. He goes, now everybody's talking to me about it. He goes, and they're coming at me with the projects I wanted. And he goes, <laughs> just so you understand, in the, last two, in the last two months, I've made an extra $100 million and I wasn't trying. He goes, yeah. I've resolved my issue with my son. I'm in process of resolving my issue with my daughter. And the, the relationship with my wife is now for the first time not hostile in 20 years. Why? Because 
I made him look in the mirror because I'm willing to stand there and fight for the person's soul. And I was at a meeting with him recently at a Singularity University event, and, and we were standing around, and his friend said to me, what do you do? And I said, officially or unofficially? He goes, I like unofficially. I go, unofficially? He, go, he, said, he said, yeah. I said, hmm. I said, I bring home the disenfranchised parts of the souls of leaders. And he went, wow, I like that. I go, <laughs> that's actually the truth of what I do. <laughs> yeah. I, I hadn't thought yeah. about it. It wasn't a spiel. It was just like, that's what it actually is. <laughs> I like that he actually asked for the unofficial because that's the real stuff. That's it. And, and huh. so like you say, it's the work. And unfortunately, people want to get results without doing the work. So what they get, they do get results. They get, they get success. But anybody, you can ask anybody. Ask Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey once said, I want everybody to have a taste of fame and fortune so they know it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because everybody's pursuing it because we've all been sold this bag of tricks. So we all are pursuing the million dollar target that becomes the five million, that becomes the hundred million, that becomes the billion. And then we all go, oh shit, this isn't it. So we have to stop and go, what really matters? And that's when you come back to purpose. What really matters? So good. And, you know, I just really appreciate your being so candid with this. I think it helps people to get real with themselves. And so I'm kind of curious because when you talk about leaders and the age of AI, I mean, in some ways, I think all of these shifts and all of these conversations are are just forcing people to actually care about this topic. It's not that this is a new topic. Fine, you know, all the stuff you're talking about is not new. No. But now there's a little more, I don't know, urgency to actually care about it or think about it. How do you view the impact of of AI and these conversations growing on the topics of purpose and how a leader views what their role is? <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, and as you know, that's one of the topics of my keynotes is how, how to thrive as a leader in the age of AI. Because by 2030, which is like 10 minutes away, you know, yeah. most, 40% of jobs will be taken over by AI or some form of robotics. So what are we going to do? I mean, really, what are we going to do? And, and so you have to look at, well, what, what is it that AI cannot do? So AI is fantastic at optimizing. It does optimize. It's brilliant. I, I'm a big fan of AI for the places where I, AI needs to be. So it'll optimize, but it cannot create. So your creativity, if you want to survive and you want to thrive in the age of AI as a leader, or, and, and by that I don't mean of many, you might be a leader of one. But if you want to thrive in the age of AI, you need to work on your creativity. Everything in leadership has pushed us towards hard skills. But in fact, the most valuable ones will be soft skills. So you need to develop your creativity, empathy, compassion, love, and communication. Those are the real high-value things moving forward. And so developing your AI, which means cognitive agility, being able to be agile with different people, who think differently than you, who um, not only think differently from you, but, you know, we are now in the gig economy. Most of us who run businesses have, I have a team of uh, 12 people. One of them is here in the same city as me. Everybody right. else is in uh, Portugal, 
India, uh, many of them are in the U.S., um, different parts of the U.S., Europe, Australia. I mean, they're all over the show, right? right. So you, you, there's a cultural difference. You've got to be able to adapt to that. So mm-hmm. this, this cognitive agility is vitally important. The ability to have creativity uh, outside of the bounds of what you think it is. You know, people think of creativity and they think of being an artist. That's creative, no doubt about it. I was an artist as a kid. My art was in galleries by the time I was 11. I don't paint and I don't draw, but I'm still an artist, right? So your creativity has many outlets. Give yourself the room and the flexibility to be creative outside of painting or drawing and understanding that your creativity can show up in a million different ways. Compassion, empathy, these are things that we've actually trained ourselves away from in order to become better at hard skills. And we need to re-embrace that because humanity, the humanity side of business is going to become very, very important to leaders. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think what makes the topic intriguing to me is a lot of people still don't actually believe these changes are happening. Like you talk about AI and people like, yeah, yeah, in the future. And it's like, no, it's actually already happening and you mentioned gig economy is here. I think most people are either unaware of it or think it's way out in the future. These changes are are here. And so I think one of the questions is, all right, let's say you believe these things are true. Creativity, empathy, love. These are the new core kind of skills and competencies for a leader. Yeah. But on a day-to-day basis, I mean, those things are a bit invisible. You know, there's all these external needs and demands and what people can measure. So how do you find that leaders actually start focusing on these soft skills in a real meaningful way when the reality of day-to-day life is still a lot of external demands and a lot of, you know, what you feel matters and, and gets rewarded is external? I mean, how do you realistically make the shift? It's a great question. And it's one that I you know, now I can answer that I struggled with for 10 years. <laughs> uh-huh. So it took me 10 years um, to realize that actually all of this is measurable. I didn't realize that all of this is measurable. So, really? uh, yeah, so the Gallup, Gallup Institute did research around the world. And, you know, we all know this. If you've been on LinkedIn, you've seen this in everybody's headline, that more than 70% of workers are disengaged. Okay, that's a measurement, right? Yeah. So you've got less than 30% of your workforce who are engaged. By the way, more than half of the ones who are disengaged are actively disengaged. So let me make that clear to you. Disengaged means they're screwing around on Facebook or social media when they're supposed to be working. All right, fair enough. You know, you're paying them and they're not really doing the job. That's a bit of a pain in the ass, but you can live with it. Actively disengaged means they are bad-mouthing you and they are bad-mouthing the company and they're doing destructive work. So you've got six horses pulling in one direction and two pulling back in the other direction. This is a problem. <laughs> That's actively yeah. disengaged. So if you could turn the if you could turn the two horses that are that are actively disengaged around to just becoming engaged, productivity would go up. Right. So what we know is from the work is that engaged workers are two hundred and two percent more productive. That's a measurable number. What we know is that companies that are purpose-driven, this is the work that I do in companies. I go into companies, help them to find their purpose, help the executive team to find their purpose individually and build a collective purpose that becomes a purpose-driven organization. What do we know about that? Well, what we know about that is over a period of 15 years, not according to me, according to the S&P 500, over a period of 15 years, 
the stock value of purpose-driven organizations goes up by about 1,200%. Wow. Meanwhile, the non-purpose-driven companies go up by about 116%. That is a vast measurable difference. So when you can mm -hmm. show people the numbers of the impact of soft on hard bottom line, so there's an article, and it's actually a piece from my book, Fiercely Loyal, where I talk about soft skills are the new bottom line. Yeah, I love that. And every day when you go into work or wherever it is that you lead, there's there's the temptation of, okay, I can answer this email and then check, check the box, right? And you get this kind of dopamine hit. It feels really good. I got something done. Um, how do you, like, if these soft skills are measurable, how do you begin to make them feel like things I'm accomplishing or is that not necessary? Well, it is, but part of that is, is, is um, training ourselves to recognize it. So one of the things I know people are terrible at is recognizing their own successes. Right? We're, we're <laughs> awful at it. Uh -huh. I was terrible at it for years. I'm still not great. Not like I'd like to be, but I'm a hell of a lot better than I was. But what does it mean? It means that you actually have to notice that. You know, you notice on the on the checklist that you, oh, yeah, good. I did that, did that, did that. And look, that adds up to this. Well, okay, why aren't you doing that on a human level? So let me ask you, what impact did you have at a personal level as a leader today? Who did you impact? Who did you influence? Whose life did you make better in some major or minor way? Do you know that? Do you log that every day? If you don't log that every day, you are not going to notice. You actually have to train yourself to notice that. So one of the things we talk about is proud leadership moments. Actually have a list of your proud leadership moments. They may be leadership over a, a Fortune 10 company. They may be leadership over your dog. They may be leadership over your two-year-old where you behaved in a, as a compassionate and caring and loving leader. The, don't start noticing those. And what's more is have the people you lead notice them, meaning get them to do it for themselves because there is no minor leader. There's no such thing as a minor leader. If you're the janitor, you're a leader, just like the CEO. Yeah. And so you start noticing these moments where you're having positive impact and start logging them and paying attention to them because those are the things that matter. Let me ask you a question. As you listen to this right now, I want you to think for a moment. I want you to think about a subject that you be, fell in love with at school. But I want you to pick a specific subject. I want you to pick a subject that you initially hated. We've all got one. So some of you went to school. You got your Steve. Some of you didn't like when you went to school. And then suddenly, for some reason, later on, you ended up really loving the subject. Or it could be reverse. Uh -huh. You really liked it, and then you ended up disliking it. You got one? Uh-huh. What's your subject? Okay. Mine was English. English. Did you start off hating it and end up loving it, or the other way around? Uh, I started off hating it and still hate it. Okay, no, but I want you to find one that you ended up started hating and ended up loving. That would probably be math. Math. Now, I will tell you why. Are you ready? The teacher. That's it. Yeah. It's very simple. Yeah. It's very simple. I hated science. Hated it because my science teacher was a dick. And then I fell in love with science because we got a new science teacher who made it an adventure, who made it exciting. And I loved about it. My first teacher made it about math. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, I just can't get this because That's I'm so a visual true. creative. My second teacher came in and I was like, I don't understand this. 
who was under who explained equations to me as visual pictures that I could get that were creative things, and I went, "Oh, bam, got it! Wow, this is exciting, and I'm I'm in love with it now." And that happened yeah. with several subjects. The difference was the impact and influence of a leader who happened to be in the form of a teacher. That's it. There is no minor leaders. There are no minor leaders. Get this. So it's how you approach how you're leading. It's the humanity, the connection. The subject was still was still science. The subject yeah. was still math, but the context was different because of the delivery of the humanity and the engagement of that individual. Wow. You know, it, it makes me think about usually when you hear someone's story and what what caused them to change the most or become who they are, it's almost always an individual. And funny enough, a lot of times it was a teacher and it was a teacher who stood out in that way or someone who early on in their life brought that kind of passion and influence in in the role they had. And so, I mean, you all can't see Dov right now, but you know, hands are flying. The passion is spit flying everywhere. And, and I can just see it on your face. It's, it's, this is such a real thing that when people can realize the positions they've been put in and who they're leading and who they're meant to impact, man, there's just, there's so much potential in how you can help other people and so much to lose out on if you're not aware of this. So I, I think what you bring up is really important because it applies to everybody. It does. And we've got to get that. This is where we're, we're, we're so flawed as a society because we're paying CEOs hundreds of millions of dollars. Remember, I deal with these guys, so I'm talking bad right. about my own people, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we pay these guys hundreds of millions of dollars, and teachers are there. Are, there are teachers who are literally living out of their car. What the fuck is wrong with us? Right. right. Our lives are transformed by teachers, and we can't pay them a decent living wage. And banks are screwing people, and we have the, the the Great Recession, and nobody goes to jail. What the hell is wrong with our society? There's an evidence of there's something wrong with our society. We don't value the right things. Yeah, We don't stop and say, hold on a minute. Leadership, I'll tell you where leadership starts. Are you ready? Yep. The day you came out of your mother, that's leadership. <laughs> because listen, if you want to know who changes the world, we know that the people with power officially, are white men with silver hair. Old white guys. We know that. You know, it's not racist. It's not, and it's not reverse racism. It's not anything else. It's a fact. But you know who has the real power? Women and artists. Women because they're mothers and they get to whisper in the ears of their children. I want you to respect your mom, not because she's great. Listen, my mom... A lot of flaws. <laughs> Lots of flaws. I'm grateful that she brought me into the world. I'm grateful for many things. She's a very flawed individual with a lot of problems. The prob- One of the problems was she taught me how to be a man, and I needed a lot to be a man from a man. I didn't have a dad, so that pro- you know, I had to teach myself that. Mm-hmm. But women get to whisper in the ears of, of their sons and tell them, honor women. Women get to whisper in their daughter's ears and tell them, there's no difference between you and a man and a woman in the, in the level of power. And artists get to have, they're so powerful because comedians, and this is part of our problem right now, comedians and artists can speak about things that politicians can never speak about. 
Right. When an artist paints a picture or tells it, states a poem or writes a song and it speaks about things that we're not paying attention to, when a comic can make a joke about gun law and the politicians can't say anything because the lobbyists are paying for their bills, we know that the real power, we and we need to value where that real power is. We need to value the mothers. We need to value the influencers, which are the teachers. We need to value the artists. And that's why inherently there is this deep love we have for these people, but we financially yeah. undervalue them. And that's the real grasp. That's the real juice of leadership. His understanding is impact and influence. Boom. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, man. So good. Oh, okay. Mic dropped. <laughs> the mic has been dropped. So if you're not inspired by now and ready to do something, then, then get, ready, get ready. <laughs> Clear. <laughs> uh, well, um, you know, something we always love to do is leave the listeners with a baby step because you just like any other, you know, coach and leadership person know that this can be intimidating to make a big change. So what's, what's the first small step someone could take like today, right after hearing this? Well, the first small step, well, no, it's not so small. The first small step is go get one red thread. Like I said, it's available on Amazon as an ebook. It's easy to get and go through the exercises, at least read it, right? Go through the exercises uh, it's not a first easy step because it will challenge you to look at stuff you probably not looked at. But here's the thing. I want you to ask yourself a simple question. What pain am I running away from? And when your head says none, say, but what if I am? What pain am I running away from? What shame am I afraid to look at? And if I looked at that pain or that shame, and I was really honest, at least with myself, how, may, how might that make somebody else's life better? Next thing I'm going to give you to do, very, I'm going to give you some very simple steps. Perfect. I want you to go ask, ask yourself, get a piece of paper out and ask yourself, who do I need to ask for forgiveness? Not who do I need to forgive, but who do I need to ask for forgiveness? And you think, well, I don't know if they know or, you know, they forgave me years ago or maybe they forgot. Just because they said they forgive you doesn't mean they do. Go and uh -huh. ask again. I went to Australia on a, on a holiday about 10 years ago, went back and I've been back since, but I was there about 10 years ago and I went and saw uh, two of my close friends. I was best man at their wedding and I stood there in front of them and I remembered as I was standing there just about to say goodbye, I remembered who I'd been in the last year I lived in Australia in the context of them and how I'd taken them for granted. And I said, and I started to cry as I said goodbye to them. And they said, what is it? And I said, I really need to apologize. And they said, for what? I said, for being a dick. And they said, you weren't a dick. You were always a really good guy. And I said, no, no, it doesn't matter whether you see it. It matters whether I know it. I took you for granted. I was in a lot of financial trouble. I struggled. I was bitchy. I was impatient. And you let me live with you, and you never said anything about it. You never charged me any rent. You were so generous and kind to me. And I really need to apologize that I took that for granted. And we all started to cry. And they said, you know, you don't need our forgiveness. You already have it. And I said, but I need to ask for it. And, you know, it was important for my soul, not for theirs, for right. my soul. Right. So who do you need mm -hmm. to ask for forgiveness, even if you've already asked? That was another thing. I did the same thing with my daughter. Uh, at Christmas time, I, I said, you know, I really need to ask for your forgiveness 
And she goes, for what, Dad? I said, for being a shit dad. She goes, but you're not a shit dad. And I said, no, but I have been. And I need to know that. And I need to know that you know I'm not brushing that off because of the good things I've done. One does not cancel out the other. Mm-hmm. Right? So ask yourself, what do you need to be forgiven? What do you need to ask for forgiveness for? And then on top of that, ask this. How can I serve? Ask yourself, how can I serve? Not my ego, not my reputation, but how can I serve? And the final one is this. What am I afraid to say? You see, before I talked about reconciling the parts of leaders' souls and bringing them home, I was afraid to say that. That was like, Jesus, you know, if I say that, right. I sound like some metaphysical yeah. loony, right? Yeah. I was afraid to say that. But that uh-huh. is what I do. And that is, and the guy, one of my clients was standing there and he went, uh-huh. He had no <laughs> problem with it. It's yeah. all in my head. I'm afraid right. to say it. Will it put people off? Absolutely. The thing you're afraid to say will put people off. Yes, get that. It will. So what? It will also attract the right people. What are you afraid to say? Find the hill you're willing to die on. Get strong about it. Get courageous about it. Because you cannot make a difference in this world until you get your balls out of the jar that you keep them in underneath the sink. And by the way, I'm talking to women too. We get the gonads out from underneath the sink and put your gonads on because it takes courage to make a difference in the world. And it's not other people's courage. When other people say to me, dog, you're so courageous. Uh, but some of the things they said about it's not courageous for me. It's easy. There are things that I do that are very difficult that you would never know. There are things that look difficult that are very easy. There are things that you do. I go, wow, Steve, that's so courageous. And you go, eh, not really. Don't let other people decide what's courageous. You have to do that. And you know what it is. It's what scares the crap out of you that doesn't seem like a big deal to others. That's what you got to do. Huh. All right. Yeah, this is some gr- really great advice. And I love the questions. Um, everybody, you know, I think it goes without saying, but go pick up uh, Fiercely Loyal. And, you know, I, there's all kinds of other good thoughts in there, not just for organizational life. Like we've been talking, this applies throughout all life and leadership. Mm-hmm. And go get the one red thread. We'll also have links in the show notes for these, including the all at once course that Dov mentioned at the beginning. Thank you. Um, and we'll also have links where people can kind of follow your various content. So thanks so much for coming on. This is just really fun and really inspiring. Well, thank you, Steve. I really appreciate being invited. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Here at The Greenhouse Effect, we are big fans of our friends at Belay Solutions. They are a company that provides virtual assistants and bookkeepers and social media managers. We want to give you a taste of what it's like to work with Belay from one of their clients. His name is Dave Richards, the CEO and lead coach for Elite Performance Associates. Belay saved me when I was focused on growing my business. You know, I can think of recently, um, I was working with a high profile, uh, you know, federal government agency on a conference for them. And it had a lot of moving parts. You know, my VA allowed me to confidently let go of all of those things and just focus solely on 
preparing content and delivering a high value program to the client. Belay follows up with me, how can I give more? This constant prodding of, you know, how do you, how can we help you more? How can we pull more from your plate so that you can do, you know, what you're meant to do and what you're best at? If you resonate with any of this and you want more information, we have partnered with Belay to offer $200 off of your startup costs. And if you want to learn more about that or have a free consultation with a member of the Belay team, just click the link in the show notes or go to belaysolutions.com backslash next step. I want to give everybody another book that's not mine, if that's okay. It's a book that I recommend to all leaders, and it's not a leadership book. People go, well, you know, you asked me for a leadership book and you're recommending this? Yes. Why? Well, this is one of my Bibles. And what I mean by that is it's a book I read cover to cover multiple times a year and always have a copy of it close by. um, And I'll read a paragraph or two because it's been such a great influence on my life. It's one of my great teachers um, who I never had the pleasure to meet because he died long before I was born. And that is Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. If you don't know that book, it's a very small book. It's a thin book of quote-unquote poems, not rhyming poems, but stories about uh, friendship, about love, about work, about all kinds of different subjects. It's a profound influence on my life. It allows me to get me out of the way and let what one would call the divine flow through me. It's... I highly recommend it. I've probably given away more copies than I can imagine. I, I probably kept the book in print, but it's called The <laughs> Prophet with a PH by Khalil Gibran. And it was uh, it's from the very early part of the uh, 20th century. And I highly recommend that to you. Just pick it up, thumb through it, you know, just pick it up randomly. And by the way, I've, I'll tell you that I've given it to people who have told me that they got the book when I gave it to them 10 years before. And then they go, it took me 10 years to get to that book. But when I got it, it was like, wow. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend. Don't forget to subscribe and come on, do us a favor. Leave a five-star review. It'll help others find the show too.